Hi, everyone. This is Reed. I hope you're having a very nice week this week. We have something for you as a little bonus uh, that we hope you'll find interesting and entertaining. I had mentioned on our episode, We Need to Talk About Kevin, that as the fear of God was being developed and being conceived, I had made three brief test pilots, if you will, kind of proof of concept episodes to share with some trusted friends and some people who were helping me to develop the show and and get it off the ground. And since one of those episodes was on We Need to Talk About Kevin, I thought it might be interesting. And uh, Nathan and I thought we would give you a little peek behind the curtain and kind of uh, show you what that was like. So that's what you're about to hear. It is very brief, particularly considering uh, the length of one of our normal episodes. And uh, it is just me on the show uh, because this was before Nathan had come on as one of the hosts. And it is uh, it features a very early and very cheesy, if I may say so myself, version of uh, an opening theme song. But uh, we we think that you will, uh, or at least we hope you will find it, uh, again, somewhat interesting and uh, provide a little bit of a a different take on that film uh, from what we eventually landed on with the formal episode. But either way, uh, kick back, enjoy it, and we will see you next week for another, uh, another installment. I hope you have a good week. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Podcast exploring the intersection between Christianity and the horror genre. Hi, everybody, it's Reed, back with another episode of The Fear of God. This week's movie was called We Need to Talk About Kevin. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with that title. Probably too much fun, because whenever my wife would say, do you need something from the grocery store, I would typically respond with, well, what I need is to talk about Kevin. She didn't find it as funny as I did. It got old pretty quickly in our house. But despite the title and despite the the many opportunities for jokes there are, it's a very heavy film. It's not necessarily horror. It's more of a drama with some horrific elements to it, and it's a little bit more disturbing. Uh, It's definitely never interested in trying to scare you. Um, Its subject matter is just a little bit more unsettling. Well, I can't really talk about the movie effectively without spoiling a huge chunk of the ending. So if you are interested in seeing this film and you don't want it spoiled, then I would recommend we talk later. Go see the movie, and then come back and we'll talk. Okay, I'm about to spoil everything, <laughs> so just be prepared. We, uh, we start by seeing this woman in two phases of her life. Her name is Eva, and she's played by Tilda Swinton. 
Tilda Swinton, by the way, giving what I think might be, and I'm not the first person to say this, she might be giving the greatest performance of her career. It's certainly the best thing I've ever seen her do. I've always thought that she was a very interesting actress. She always delivers a pretty solid performance, but this is really impressive. Her work in this is, is really outstanding and can't be overrated. She does a phenomenal job. She plays a lady named Eva who, as I said, we see in two phases of her life. And in the first phase, she's trying to cope with being a new mother. And she's having a difficult time because her son, she doesn't feel a, a particularly strong parental bond with him. And there's a couple of effective scenes where she's trying to calm him and soothe him as he's crying and screaming. She's not getting anywhere with it. And in fact, at one point, she goes out to visit. She takes him on a stroll in his, in his stroller and goes to a place where they're doing some road construction just so she can stand next to the sound of the jackhammer and have that drown out the sound of her screaming child. When he was a baby, he never stopped screaming. I thought maybe it had damaged his hearing. Oh, his hearing's fine. But shouldn't he be talking by now? I've read somewhere that non-verbalizing was the... An early sign of autism. He has none of the telltale uh, rocking signs. I wouldn't worry about it too much. There's nothing wrong with him. As Kevin gets older, Kevin exhibits a very toxic relationship with his mom. He's very mean to his mother. There's one scene that really affected me where his mother, Eva, wallpapers her room in maps from around the world because she's interested in traveling, and that's a dream that she has. So she creates this space where she feels at home and feels, you know, her dreams are coming alive in this, in just the simple expression of wallpaper. And when she leaves the room, well, first of all, Kevin sees it and calls it dumb and says some hurtful things to her about it. Then when she leaves the room, he proceeds to splash paint all over the wallpaper, defacing the work that she's done. And that kind of behavior is not uncommon in their relationship. He's constantly seeming to antagonize her and is constantly seeming to be at war with her and is, as I said, mean and hurtful and hateful towards her. Now, he has a very different relationship with his dad, Franklin, who's played by John C. Riley. Whenever Franklin is around, Kevin is an adorable, sweet little boy, a very polite boy, a very calm boy. And so Franklin has a very different impression of who Kevin is. Now, as I said before, we see Eva in two phases of her life. So we see her struggling to cope with a child that she's not having the bond she's supposed to have with. And then, in the future, something terrible has happened. Something very tragic. We get the impression that it's something somewhat violent. And whatever this thing is, it's caused Eva to be an outcast in the town where she lives. She is seen as somebody, as, as a, a person of hate. She's seen as, uh, as a person who has caused a lot of emotional distress to people in the town. We see her slapped and assaulted. Looks like someone's having a nice day. Enjoying yourself? Sorry. Hey. I hope you rotten hell, you f What the hell was that? No, 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 okay. no, no, it's nothing. It's really... Let it's me nothing. call my No, 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 it was my fault. But she just told me... No, no, I'm fine. And we later see that when she's in the grocery store, 
a woman spots her from further down the aisle and she sort of slips away and hides uh, to, to get away from this woman that spots her. And then when she goes to check out her groceries, when Eva goes to check out her groceries, she finds that that woman in that moment of time smashed all of the eggs that she had in her grocery cart. And Eva, in, in a minor panic, just buys them how they are and, uh, and then proceeds to take them home and scramble them with the shells inside and just take her time picking out the shells as she takes bites of food. So clearly... Something has happened to cause her to be a figure of hate and scorn and derision in the town. There is one interesting person who approaches her, and this person is in a wheelchair, and he asks if she's okay and asks how she's doing. But everybody else seems to treat her with a lot of hate. They deface her house. They splash red paint on the front of her house and all over her car. She has trouble finding a job, and even when she does find a job, it's only because they don't do a background check on her. They don't, they don't really care. They just, they just give her the job. So she's living a pretty lonely and desperate life. And we don't find out until the end that the reason for that is that her son, Kevin, whose continued tendency towards negative and mean and hateful behavior suddenly unleashes all of his, his fury onto the school where he attends. Uh, he took a bow and arrows into the school building and committed a massacre at this school. Not only that, we discover tragically that he also killed his dad, Franklin, and his little sister with the same bow and arrows. And he left his mom utterly alone. And she chose to stay in that town and sort of take the blame, take the responsibility for what her son had done. There's obviously a ton of things that I could talk about in the movie. And it's, it's not easy to really describe everything. And we're certainly not going to, to land on any easy answers, which is part of what I admire about the film. But... A couple of things that I, uh, that I think are worth mentioning are, first of all, it obviously deals with the argument of nature versus nurture. So, is Kevin a product of, of his own personal genetic makeup, or is he a product of, of an ineffective home environment? So, is he somebody who, given a different set of parents or a different set of circumstances, might have turned out differently, or was he always... This, this psychopathic little boy. And the film, of course, in my opinion, tends to lean towards Kevin was born this way. That's a lot of what I interpreted of the scene. But there's enough evidence in the film that you could make a case uh, both ways about, well, there, uh, maybe he just, because he didn't have that, that motherly love that he was, you know, that children are supposed to receive, in quotation marks, supposed to receive, then uh, maybe that contributed to his psychopathic behavior. We also uh, discussed, and my, my wife and I discussed, that there's this interesting idea presented in the film, and that's the idea that we can sometimes view somebody's behavior over which we have no specific control, and yet we somehow feel the need to take responsibility for it. As I'm recording this, there's a, a media firestorm right now going on about a woman whose toddler slipped through an enclosure in a zoo and got into uh, a pen with a gorilla. 
uh, an endangered species of gorilla. And uh, this gorilla began uh, sort of dragging the child around the pen. And after a few minutes, the zookeepers decided, unfortunately, to, um, to kill the gorilla. And there's a lot of people on the Internet who have a, a, a lot of opinions about it. They range anywhere from, uh, you know, the, the mother should be prosecuted for not watching her child and letting her child get into the pen, or uh, the other side of the extreme is, uh, you know, that we're valuing animal life over human life. I'm not here to make a case about that. I'm not here to even really project how I feel about it. I just think it's interesting that we have a tendency when something goes wrong to blame uh, somebody, anybody, and in many cases when a child is involved or when even a teenager is involved, we'll have a tendency to blame bad parenting. And I think that that situation shows up a lot in modern culture where as soon as a child or a teenager behaves, they immediately blame bad parenting. I can remember reading a book by Dave Cullen called Columbine, just about the Columbine shootings not that long ago. And there was a moment in it that I found very interesting where the parents of the victims approached the parents of the shooters, and the parents of the victims said to the parents of the shooters, we forgive you. But the parents of the shooters, in a somewhat odd reaction, said, we, we don't need your forgiveness. We didn't do anything wrong. Our son did a horrible thing, but he's responsible for his own actions. We didn't do anything. Now again, I don't know how you may feel about that, but I do think it's interesting that we can almost immediately go to, to try to blame someone. Um, naturally, we do have a tendency to blame the people who actually did the bad things or said the bad things, but what I'm more fascinated about and what we need to talk about Kevin made me think about is how people who didn't commit those acts still somehow wind up taking responsibility for them. So, Kevin... Um, Mom had something that she wanted to tell you. I was concerned that you might be feeling responsible. Was that? Because you were supposed to be looking after her. We just don't want you to blame yourself. No, I don't. I mean, I, I never said I did. The question that I constantly asked myself is why doesn't Eva move? Why doesn't she find a new town, start over, start a fresh life, start a fresh existence? And I found it so interesting, the more I thought about it, that she was kind of taking responsibility for what her son had done. That she was allowing herself to be punished in the eyes of the town and by the people of the town for something that she did not do. And one could really argue that she was just as much a victim of as the rest of the people who lost their life and who were wounded. That's why I found that interesting, uh, that scene very interesting about the boy who was wounded in the massacre, who approaches her and, and asks if she's okay. He's the only character in the film who does that. He's the only character who approaches her with any sense of compassion. The rest of the people tend to blame her and tend to heap some sort of punishment upon her for what her son had done. So it's interesting to me. There's a, there's a passage in the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel, which talks, I believe it's Ezekiel 33, where it talks about the watchman. And in the, the context of that chapter, there's a watchman who has been set over the city. And the Bible says that when he sees danger approaching, if he warns the townspeople about the danger, and they don't do anything about his warning, then that's on them. But if he doesn't warn them, then that's not only on their heads, 
That's on his. And I thought about that passage when I was thinking about this movie, and particularly about that title, because the title is, again, We Need to Talk About Kevin, which is interesting because no character ever says that in the movie. And I wondered if the movie is making a kind of statement by not having that line ever delivered, um, if it's supposed to just be implied that that was said and, and nothing ever really came of it, or maybe there were lots of conversations that just never really got to the bottom of what was going on with Kevin, or if that was the exact statement that needed to be said and never was, that nobody really said, you know what, we need to talk about Kevin, we need to deal with this, we need to talk about this situation. It obviously also brings up for me um, some interesting ideas given my faith. I, of course, being a Christian, have as one of my fundamental beliefs that there was um, a man, the Son of God, who took on himself blame and punishment for things he was not responsible for. Now, if you're not a Christian, you, you probably think that that's a pretty crazy idea anyway. But if you are a Christian, you know what I'm talking about, that we believe fundamentally that Jesus paid the price for our sins. And so we have... As, as a foundational principle that somebody took responsibility for things that they should not necessarily have taken responsibility for. We call that grace, that somebody took the punishment that they didn't deserve and spared people who did deserve that punishment. And it's interesting because if you are not a Christian thinker, you may find that very idea repellent. You may think that that's not a very... Um, psychologically healthy idea, you may think that that's not justice, that that's not fair, that anybody would be punished in the place of someone else. But I couldn't help but think about it when I think about poor Eva, who for reasons completely unknown to me, has decided to take on the punishment from the townspeople, from the people who had lost loved ones and the people who had been irreparably damaged by Kevin's actions, and she's choosing in her own way to take on this punishment onto herself and live that life. It's something that um, I think we could all probably do a better job of stopping and asking when we come across a situation that someone has done something wrong, someone has done something, let's, let's not talk about it in terms of right and wrong actually, let's talk about it in terms of harm. Somebody's done something that is hurtful or harmful and we have a tendency to if, it, if we were the recipients of that, if we were the victims of that, we find somebody to blame. Shoot, even if we are not the recipients of it, you can look at the internet, particularly in that situation I referenced earlier, and you can talk about how uh, people just want to find someone to blame. They want not only to find somebody to blame, but somebody to punish for what goes wrong. If they can't blame a specific individual, then they'll blame an institution. If they can't blame an institution, then they'll probably go and blame society at large. Or maybe they might even go the other, the, the farthest extent and go ahead and blame God. But they have to find somebody to blame. I think it's a, it's a coping mechanism that we have, that we have to find somebody to blame for what is hurtful and ugly and painful and wrong in ourselves and in the world around us. But I also think that we can sometimes position ourselves, perhaps unnecessarily, to assume the blame and assume the responsibility for things over which we had no control. And I wish for myself and for the people that I love that we had less of that, 
that we had less of the self-punishment, the self-degradation, the, the taking on and heaping on to ourselves the, um, the problems of things that we, that we had no way of stopping. We had no way of controlling it. And maybe we just feel responsible because the, the person who really did it will never take responsibility. And maybe there's something in us that cries out for justice and says, somebody has to be punished for this, so I will punish myself. Or maybe it is simply guilt that drives us to say, I've got to assuage my guilt by punishing myself for what has happened. I've got to, to make myself responsible for this um, in order to appease this, this nagging sense of guilt that develops in my heart. So, a couple of final thoughts as we're winding this down. Um, first of all, I do want to say that, obviously, again, as a Christian thinker, I have a fundamental belief that if you are somebody who wrestles with a lot of guilt and shame, and you heap a lot of shame upon yourself for who you are and for what you've done, I have in my belief system uh, an expression that would say that there is that there is grace, that there is an opportunity for you to be forgiven and redeemed, and that the things that you've done wrong, however heinous they may be, can be atoned for. Um, and that is through someone who has done very much the same thing that Eva did and taken responsibility for things that uh, they really were not responsible for, things that they really did not do wrong, but they've taken on the punishment so that things could be made right. And maybe there is something to this notion of atoning for things that, um, that, that we necessarily didn't do, but maybe we are in a position to do something about them. There's a phrase um, that I've heard before in business management where it talks about when things go wrong on a shop floor or in an office setting and they say, well, it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know if you think that it is the responsibility of, of parents when children and teenagers do something wrong. Maybe you feel like it is just the person's responsibility and the person who does it is the only one who needs to be held accountable for what they do. Or maybe you feel that somebody else is to blame, that it is society as a whole or the, the general direction that culture is headed. However you feel about that, I think that the movie We Need to Talk About Kevin brings up some interesting discussion points, some interesting things to think about and to talk about. I've only touched on a few of them here. I've only barely scratched the surface. Um, it's a very good movie. As I said before, it's a little difficult to uh, get into at first because the structure is not linear. It's not told in a straightforward way. So that may be a little, uh, that may require a little adjustment when you're viewing it uh, initially. But I do think the performances are very strong, particularly by Tilda Swinton and Ezra Miller, who plays uh, the teenage Kevin, uh, does an excellent job. He's effectively very creepy. John C. Riley, of course, turns in a great performance, as he often does. But uh, I think it's a movie that's well worth your time if you can handle the subject matter, if you can handle the kind of the disturbing elements of, of what it might raise up in you. It's definitely a film worth seeing. And even if you haven't seen it, if this subject interests you, I'd love to know what you think about it. I'd love to know your thoughts on the idea of nature versus nurture and whether or not we are a product of our environment or if we come out 
pretty much the way we are going to be and it's just a matter of how we're going to play that out in our own lives. Uh, I'd love to know your thoughts on that, the idea of taking responsibility for things that are not, uh, that we didn't do, things that are not necessarily our fault. Um, I'd also love to know uh, just in general what you think about the movie. So. You can comment on this post on our blog, on our website. Uh, we are a part of morethanonelesson.com, which uh, is a podcast that we uh, are also affiliated with, and we'd love for you to check that podcast out. You can check us out at morethanonelesson.com. You can email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. It's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Reed Lackey, and I would just love to hear from you. So keep in mind that, as we say every time on this show, the fear of God may be the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. I'd love to see you for the next part of the conversation when we meet again next time. Talk to you soon.